Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a daily podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. A couple of weeks ago, we were hearing that testing would soon ramp up to 15,000 tests a day. I was out in the National Viral Reference Laboratory with the Taoiseach yesterday. And what they're basically telling us now is the demand from GPs for tests is very high. And they think they'll be testing between 10 and 15,000 people on a daily basis. Not only has that not happened, the number of tests being carried out has reduced to around 2,000 a day due to supply shortages. We are running into difficulties and we need to be honest with people and frank about that. Uh, There is a global shortage of testing kits, uh, there's a shortage of reagents and we also need laboratory capacity. So we are going to have bumps in the road uh, where there are delays uh, at particular points in time. I talked to Dr Jack Lambert, infectious diseases consultant at the Matter Hospital. Recent figures uh, have shown that we're starting to flatten the curve of new cases. Is, is the lack of testing uh, distorting the picture about the true number of infections? Well, absolutely. I mean, how can you talk about flattening a curve where you're testing such small numbers of people and people are queuing up to get testing and then there's results that are pending for a week? So, so the, numbers, the, the numbers in Ireland represent our testing strategy our lack of supplies for testing rather than flattening the curve. So people can calculate all in, based on all these formulas on, on, on flattening the curve. But if you only test 10 people and zero of them are positive, you can't say we've eliminated COVID in Ireland. You, you can just say that we've had limited testing. And if you look at the reports from the other day, the NVRL, which was previously you know, testing 1,500, only tested 750. So, so of course, you know, so, so of course, if you go from 300 to 200 because you're testing 750 rather than 1500, how can you come up with calculations that you're flattening the curve? You know, that, that really doesn't make sense. Flattening the curve doesn't come from just putting people in isolation, or, you know, closing down the country, put, putting people in social isolation. Flattening the curve comes from upscaling testing and then as soon as those test results are available, which should be in 24 hours, you actually contact trace everyone who has had a significant exposure. That's the way you flatten the curve, not by calculating numbers based on, you know, kind of uh, low testing, you know, figures that we currently have in Ireland. So if the testing system is not working effectively, should we simply be focusing our attention uh, on other areas instead? No, I, I didn't say the testing isn't working. I, I, I said there's been a problem with limited supplies of testing reagents. So the point is, is that, they, that if you looked at last week's announcements, we're planning on scaling up testing from, from 1,000 to 2,000 to 10,000 to 15,000. Um, that was last week's announcement, but... If you, don't, if you don't have the scale-up capabilities, and that's based on having the laboratories, having the laboratory people you know, to do the testing, um, having uh, the reagents to run the test, having a turnaround time, I think the best strategy, if you look at, uh, you know, if you look at what was said by, by Tedros, he says the, the best strategy is test, test, test. And if you look at the best successes in you know, South Korea in, in Singapore and many of the other countries have been able to flatten the curve. They didn't do it just by putting people in isolation and reporting numbers. Um, they actually did it by 
testing and very strict contact tracing. So that's what, that's what we need to be doing. Um, and I just heard that, there, that new supplies of testing materials have arrived in Ireland. So, so we shouldn't make excuses for delays anymore. We should actually sit down and put together really concrete plans of scaling up testing, having results available in 24 hours, and then every patient, every contact of that patient being contact traced. That's what's going to flatten the curve, not, not somebody standing up every day announcing numbers and making predictions uh, based on information that, that really misrepresents the scope of the epidemic in Ireland. So you've said instead of doing one thing after another, as we are doing, we should be doing about 10 things and all at the same time. Is that realistic? Well, I think it is. I think there's, the, I mean, look, the healthcare services have shifted from, from you know, from inpatient services to private hospitals to outpatient services. There's lots of people within the HSE, within the Department of Health, that can re be redeployed. So yes, um, absolutely, um, everything can be done in parallel, but it takes organization and it takes, we need to have a master plan. I, I kind of look at this as, as in order to win the war, you actually can't, you, you can't actually fight one battle then another battle. You actually have to have a master plan and fight all of the battles in parallel. So there's a testing plan there's a shutdown plan, there's a contact tracing plan, but also in parallel, there has to be a community plan. There has to be an educational plan. Um, last week, I commented on the fact that, that the HSE was sending out, you know, communications and television, that you should be distancing yourself, socially isolating, and washing your hands when you leave the house. This was the message, you, you know. My message is that you should be, if you leave the house, you should be washing your hands every time you're in contact with a surface that potentially could be contaminated with COVID. It's, 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 it's equally important to be washing your hands as you, enter, as you enter a petrol station, as you leave a petrol station, as you go into the post office and leave the post office. No, that's a message I've been, I've been mentioning for weeks and weeks. And I think it's, there's significant data that's come out, scientific data to support the fact that this infection can be contagious by respiratory spread, but also by contact. Um, and and the, the Princess, the cruise liner, uh, they were able to isolate coronavirus 17 days on the surfaces. So, and, and I imagine some of the people who were infected on, on that, that, that uh, cruise ship were infected from contact. Of course, they were isolating themselves from the respiratory spread. So as of Monday, um, you know, when I went to the post office, there was, there was no facilities outside of the post office to wash your hands. There was no facilities when you left the post office to wash your hands. I had to push my way through two doors with my hands. And I think that's a significant risk for, for contamination for the, for the community. Lots of pensioners went to get their pension on Tuesday, left the house. Where did they go? They went to the post office. When I asked, I had to deliver a package to my son, a medical package, so I was at the post office. When I asked the lady there, where's the hand wipes and, and or where's the, the, the antiseptic wash, she had one back at the reception for herself, but not for, not for the community. Tedros Wednesday mentioned in, in, a, in one of his press releases, you know, the WHO director, this very issue of sanitizing in the community. 
We've known about this for weeks. There has to be somebody within the Department of Health, there has to be somebody within the government that re can be redeployed to take care of that issue. So that's one more battle that somebody can be assigned to. It should have been done two weeks ago. I'm hoping tomorrow there'll be, there'll be appropriate sanitizers in every post office in Ireland. Um, but there has to be a mission command with somebody looking at all the different battles that need to be done to fight this war. The elderly is another one. The, the plans for the very elderly who, who in nursing homes, who are at home, who, who probably shouldn't come to the hospital um, because they're so unwell and they wouldn't benefit from going on a ventilator, you know, um, and because uh, it would only pr prolong their existence. What's the substantive plan nationwide to resource the community to support the elderly? Um, and the answer is there's committees and there's a hospital plan and there's a community plan and and there's discussions about what the hospital is going to do and what the community is going to do because there's hospital community care, there's hospital palliative care, and there's community palliative care. It's time that we get over this. This is the, the there was an initiative started last year called Schlanta Care, which is kind of partnering the hospital with the community. But we don't have good partnerships with the hospital and community. We just need to sit down and put together a plan today for the anticipated surge of lots of elderly who are going to be dying to make sure that they are supported in a dignified death where they're, where they're given access to all the appropriate palliative care services that they deserve. Um, is there adequate medications in the communities to serve all these people? If we make these plans today, we might not be in the position we are as of yesterday. There's not enough reagents to do um, the COVID tests. We're, we're not able to do testing today based on, um, on, on a lack of resources that maybe we should have tried to order and have delivered three, four weeks ago in anticipation of this. We need to do the same thing. So this is another battle. What's the plan? What is the battle plan? What is the roadmap for making sure that when the surge comes with the elderly, that we have all the resources on hand? So, so I think I understand the government's in crisis and I understand the Department of Health is in crisis and, and, and jumping from one crisis to another, but there's lots of people within the government. There's a shared responsibility um, to make sure that every one of these items is dealt with, because that's the only way we're going to be able to successfully flatten the curve and provide, you know, kind of compassionate care at all levels for, for patients who, who, who are infected with corona in Ireland. As you say, Dr. Lambert, we are dealing with the crisis and policy is being formed on the hoof on the basis of an emergency. And indeed, we have recommendations this week from the, the National Public Health Emergency Team uh, on nursing homes uh, and, you know, clarifying really that that people uh, who, who contract COVID-ID should be kept in their homes if there isn't a clinical advantage to having to, to moving them to, to a hospital setting. We have a big problem with the virus in, in nursing homes. We have a, a further case highlighted today by Stephen Donnelly. What should we be doing differently? Well, I know some of the nursing homes that, are, that have high positivity rates, okay? So there's clusters around the country. Why, why, are, why are these nursing homes infected? There's lots of reasons that, that you know, the, one of the reasons 
potentially could be um, they're infected by family members going in. They could be infected by staff members who are infected. There's lots of possible reasons, but I think you actually have to target the nursing homes that are infected. You have to make sure that there's meticulous um, resourcing of PPE available to these nursing homes. You have to make sure that the staff who are working in these nursing homes are trained to understand the, the importance of PPE, when to use a mask, when to use gloves, all this kind of stuff. There needs to be upscaling of training. So look, I'm not, I'm not saying that we, we, we can, I'm not blaming the nursing homes, I'm not blaming anybody, but there are important messages out there. You, we're hearing complaints from nursing homes that they're not getting enough direction. We hear, hear complaints that they're not having the PPE. We hear complaints they don't have adequate staff. There needs to be a roadmap for what you do. What, what would a private nursing home in Ireland do if they have a first positive COVID case? You know, is, is, is there a plan for that? There has to be a master plan that's available today for them. And that plan would include making sure that staff, staff are appropriately screened, making sure that staff have appropriate PPE, making sure that positive patients in these nursing homes are appropriately, you know, uh, quarantined away from others, you know, um, making plans so that if these individuals deteriorate, that there's a palliative service available to them. I'm not disagreeing that that there's these that 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 the, the, the public the, the public health emergency, you know, group have made announcements that they're they're planning and working on those. But we actually have a, need to have a substantive plan, you know, ready today, implemented tomorrow with really clear directions to the nursing homes, to the staff of the nursing home, and a roadmap, an op a manual of operations for them to operate from. Um, because right now, like I said, the, the, there's, a, a lot of, there's a lot of communications that we're working on this, we're working on this. In the middle of a crisis, you actually have to work more efficiently. You have to, you have to make a plan one day and implement it the following day, not take two, three weeks to make it. So. I agree, we're all challenged, we're all pressured, but I think we actually have to, to, to really urgently sit down, divide and conquer, win many of these, bat of these battles um, by bringing on people that have the knowledge and the understanding of how to make it work. And, and I think I've actually mentioned in, in previous conversations, I think it's critically important to have representation and all of the committees and all of the groups within the Department of Health and the HSC of clinicians who have who are experienced and have and have long track record of working in these areas and, and working through the problems of the hospital, the problems of the community. And I think if we have better engagement, better communications, better representation of clinicians at the table of all these committees, I think that that will lessen the delay in going from an announcement that we, we have this plan to actually having an implementation of the plan in a timely fashion so that when the crisis hits, whether it's a crisis of testing, whether it's a crisis of, you know, of, of notificate, contact notifications, uh, whether it's a, it's a crisis of having resources for the nursing homes, um, I think we, we actually have to act, act quickly. Of course, the government will say that it has always acted in, in relation to this crisis, it has acted with um, on medical advice. Has it done the right things at the right times, in your view? 
Well, well, I, th I think I think I've mentioned previously that 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 there hasn't been clinical representation at these high level committees. You know, they've got consultations from from clinicians, but I actually think clinicians have to be at the table on a day to day basis at the top committees making decisions because I, I think it's a bad process to have non-clinical people with, with experience in, in the field making decisions, passing on to another committee who then say, that's a bad idea, and it goes back to the other committee. So I think up until recently, there has not been clinical representation of the appropriate specialties. And those are, those are infectious disease doctors, microbiology doctors, palliative care doctors, um, GPs, uh, respiratory specialists, ICU specialists. They've not been at the top level discussions making decisions, making plans, putting together protocols. Um, there's, I think there's been, a, there's been a lag time from going from the top committees to being re reviewed by clinicians and then rejections of the suggested plans and then going back to the, the committees again. I think we actually have to have seamless representations of public health clinicians and, and, and then other, other, you know, implementers within the Department of Health and the HSE. We all need to be around the table on the same day making decisions for all the different battles that need to be won. And I think up until recently that hasn't been an issue. And I think there's continues to be need to improve that historical kind of gap in the, in, in the system. This week we've seen another change in the criteria for testing. Um, do these changes not simply create confusion and a difficulty in, in relaying the message? Well, I, I think absolutely. I think, I, I think if you look at how people present with, 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 uh, with coronavirus, they present about 75% present with fever, uh, about 70% present with fever, and about 82% present with coughs, respiratory symptoms. And, and actually, either of those, I think, are, 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 are important indicators. And, and I think the community, the suggestion for the community is you have to have both to get tested. But I personally take care of all of the occupational health patients, uh, you know, uh, staff in the hospital who are corona positive, and I've reviewed their cases, and half of them have one or the other, not both. So, so, so in the hospital, either or counts because it's really important to know if they're positive, you know, because then we can quarantine those staff so that they don't spread it to others. But why, why don't we have the same rule for the community? They're saying it's to only 7% in the community who are testing positive for corona. By changing the algorithm, their testing is going to improve to 15%. But, but that's not important. That, those guidelines are a function of we don't have enough tests, so we have to, we have to actually you know, ration the tests. You know, and then those tests are, are taking a week to come back. And then by that time, that individual has spread it on to many other people. So, so no, that, that, I think it's a bad decision to, 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 to change the algorithm. You should have an algorithm that, that tests more people using either or of those symptoms because you'll pick up more people. You, know, you flatten the curve by picking up more people who are positive early, quarantining them, and then finding all the, their, their contacts in a timely fashion. So, so, so I think 
that was a, it's the, it, it, my opinion is, is that that decision was made as a function of, you know, not having the, the testing kits. The, the, second, the second thing that was suggested is that we're going to isolate all suspected corona and then contact trace everyone who's been in contact with that was suspected case. But in my opinion, if, the, if they're saying only 15% of those have corona, then you're going to be chasing 100 people for 15 positive, and you're going to be chasing all these contacts. I've talked to my colleagues who are, who are involved in some of the contact tracing. Contact tracing is, at the current level of staffing, is having huge problems. Finding the, the positive contacts. Now we're suggesting, as of yesterday, we're going to chase all potential contacts, not confirmed contacts. That, to me, seems a resource that we, we really can't, can't afford. Um, I, I think those, it doesn't make sense to do that. It makes sense to find the reagents and scale up, not start chasing every potential contact of somebody who doesn't have confirmed corona. So, so I, I, think, I think there are, and I think that was announced by the, by the minister, and I actually, I actually think it's not the best decision um, because I don't think it's a good use of the current contact uh, tracing resources we currently have in Ireland. Is it not also a factor, though, of the reduction in the number of contacts that, that people are having under the current restrictions? Well, well that, that, but, that, but that is good. You know, it's, it's like if, you, if you're not going to the pub now, um, you know, and you've got corona, you're, go, you're going to be you're going to be exposed to less people. So absolutely, that's great that people with, with, with corona now who are positive have, have, have less contacts because they are isolating themselves. So, so that's a step in the right direction. So I absolutely agree with the government's decision to, 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 you know, to clamp down on public gatherings, to, to close the pubs, to cancel St. Patrick's Day. I think absolutely Ireland is way ahead of many other European countries. So credit to the government for that, but you're not going to flatten the curve by taking credit for that and doing nothing more. And, you, and you're, not, you're not going to flatten the curve by saying we're changing the testing criteria. And you're not going to flatten the curve by saying, oh, we're just going to chase every potential contact you know, of suspected corona. I, I think we, we actually have to kind of do what we say we're going to do scale up testing and whatever resources that takes, bringing in the military, bringing in, you know, other, there's lots of resources in Ireland of very smart people who could be put to task to assist with this. And I think we should, we should do that tomorrow, not think about it two weeks from now when we're once well, once again, overwhelmed with another crisis. So we should be acting, not reacting. And I think in, in some situations, we're ahead of the game. And in some situations, we're, we're a day too late. And I just think we, 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 to, win this, to win this war, as I said, you have to fight every battle simultaneously. O otherwise, I don't think you're going to flatten, flatten the curve. Uh, you may on paper, but you're actually not going to affect it in, 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 in real reality. Do you believe the current shutdown is going to be effective ultimately in loosening the grip of the virus? 
Well, the shutdown's a temporary measure while everything else scales up. Absolutely, it's important. But, but if you don't scale up, you'll, you, you'll just have to shut down and shut down and shut down. You know, I, so the, the only solution to ending the shutdown is, is all these other initiatives that I'm talking about. That's, that's the, that is the successful recipe, lessons learned from other successful countries. So you, you're based at the Matter Hospital. Um, what is the extent of the, the problem with healthcare workers there at the moment? Well, the thing is, I, I can't really comment on that. Every, every, every hospital has had problems with healthcare workers. You know, if you go back to the original, you know, you know explosion that happened in Cork with an individual who was in the hospital there for a week with un, unsuspected COVID, every hospital has had patients where there was, who had unsuspected COVID for example, not everybody with COVID has a fever or a cough. Some of them have other symptoms. We're just learning this. If you look recently of the, of the first 100 patients in the UK, about 30, 40% of them had diarrhea. 3 to 5% of them had seizures and, and brain disorders. You know? So they're, they're actually, you know, if, if, if two weeks ago somebody came to the emergency room with a seizure, I wouldn't have thought COVID. So I'm saying, so people have 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 fallen through the cracks because COVID wasn't suspected. And then healthcare workers who weren't using PPE because they were on a ward think they were managing a seizure or managing the COVID patients. So some of those staff members have inadvertently, you know, been infected. And I'm sure every hospital in the country, there's been staff members who have, who have infected, you know, you know, patients in the hospital. But like I said, those, those were the early messages. Uh, we've got a great track record at the matter in terms of our small numbers of healthcare workers who've been infected. The numbers, if you, if you look, if you look at nationwide, they're much higher in other hospitals. But I think that's because Jan, we're the national isolation unit for highly infectious disease. We 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 prepare. We were preparing for this in October, November. In January first, when the COVID crisis came along, we assigned one of our clinicians to full time come off service start working, start training, start preparing for this. And our CEO at the matter has, has been preparing for this as well for the surge for a month now, even ahead of the director of the HSC and the, the Department of Health. But every hospital has been trying to scale up and prepare, but every hospital has had healthcare workers infected. Um, but those numbers, I think, are tremendously decreasing now as we've learned more about this virus and how infectious it is, not just from respiratory spread, but also from, from contact. You know, I told you it can exist in surfaces for, for days and days. Um, so, so I think we're clamping down, having a really low threshold to suspect COVID in patients admitted to the hospital. And we're meticulously wearing PPE for appropriately and washing our hands at every opportunity. So I think the numbers are only going to decrease and decrease and decrease in terms of healthcare workers in Ireland infected. Um, but but it has been it's been a if you look at the statistics, uh, almost 20 to 25 percent of total numbers in Ireland have been healthcare workers. I think that will change with time because we've learned a lesson there. Um, but it's, it was a hard lesson. There have been calls for the testing of healthcare workers to be prioritised over community testing. Is that the right approach? Well, no, they should be done in parallel. You shouldn't make compromises. You know, we say we're not doing that much testing, but we're, we're better than the UK. We're better than other countries. No, no, we have to scale up testing. 
um, the, the, the only additional reason to test a healthcare worker is, is that, is that if, if they're negative, if they've got symptoms and they're negative, they can return work to work quickly. So, so that the hospital is be currently understaffed because some critical staff members, you know, can't work in the specialty areas, for example, ICU. Um, so I think, yes, in some situations, uh, that there should be special consideration for, for prioritizing healthcare workers, especially if they're in a specialty area um, that is going to limit the ability of the hospitals to manage the surge. But equally important, there's lots of people in the community who are, who are sick and getting worse and getting worse and getting worse. And they've been offered a COVID test. And we're seeing some of those patients who have been sick for a week, sitting at home, deteriorating and ending up in the emergency room and immediately going to the ICU intubated. And I just wonder if we'd have caught them three or, days be three or four days before when that swab was done and didn't come back because of the backlog, they might not end up in the ICU. So, so that surge in that ICU capacity, you know, that we're building in the hospital, that surge is being caused by the delay in the community. So, so, so the only way to eliminate the ICU surge is by gearing up testing in the community and making sure we do it, scale up testing and scale up contact tracing and trying to identify sick people in the community early because they're not showing up too late. And this is a virus that you can be short of breath one day and you can be intubated the next day and in near death. It's, it's a very rapid progression of disease in some people, especially the elderly, especially the immunocompromised. Um, and that, that's scary. This is something that none of us clinicians have ever seen before. So we really should take it seriously. And, and we shouldn't be making decisions, oh, we're going to do the healthcare workers and not the community. We just need to find a solution that, that don't compromise. You know, we've done some excellent things. Let's not talk about choosing one over the other. Let's do both. Finally, how is the matter coping with the, the increased demand on its services? Well, I think, I think everybody's doing well because we've closed down the other services. We've closed down elective services. We've, we've closed down outpatient clinics. Of course, you know, the ICU team has, has been stressed as we're having increased capacity there, and that's a limited resources. But we've, we, we've actually cross-trained a lot of surgical nurses and, and, and to, do, to do medical service when, when they weren't used to doing that. We've, we've trained up a lot of surgeons, orthopedic surgeons and consultants and their teams to, to do medical assessments now. So, so everybody's coming to the... So this is something that you have to be really proud, proud of, is that even in, the, even in light of the fear of coronavirus, I think every, every patient has, but every doctor, every nurse, every staff member has, this is one of the few times that I think every hospital, including the master, people have come to help, to offer their help. So surgeons have come to offer their help working on COVID wards. We're cross-training everyone to prepare for the ICU surge. So this is really kind of remarkable. So I think there's a whole, there's a whole kind of spirit of togetherness and working together. Um, I hate to tell you that there's politics in every hospital. Every specialty works with every special work doesn't work with other specialties. There's there's always internal politics in hospitals. 
uh, between consultants and within specialties. But this is one of the few times that I've seen at the Matter Hospitals, every specialty coming together, surgeons and medical doctors working together, um, people cross-training and, and working you know, towards the effort of making sure that Ireland doesn't turn into you know, the picture that you're seeing in the UK, the picture you're seeing in Italy, the picture you're seeing in France. There's fear in, every, in the back of everybody's mind, but I think everybody's working very well together, you know, praying and hoping for the best and doing everything we can to be prepared. I did mean to ask you about face masks. Um, it, it's one example of an area where the messages are very mixed. Well, my take is, look, the, the fellow that's in the room with me, I'm fine because we're socially distancing, you know, that's the kind of thing. But if I had coronavirus with just mild cough, if I was close to him and talking loud, you know, there is evidence that, that coronavirus is, is contagious, you know, is co- contagious even in people who don't have massive respiratory symptoms. So I think you can't wear a fast face mask every five minutes. You can't walk, not everybody in Ireland can walk around in face masks. You don't need to. So social distancing is fine in most situations. But if you're in the emergency room, see where half the people probably are going to be coming in with coronavirus, if you're actually going to examine a patient and getting close to them, you should wear a face mask. But you should take that face mask off afterwards and throw it away and use a new one because taking it on, you know, having it hanging in your neck and putting it on and off and on and off is a bad message. But, but now this is what people in the hospital are doing. They're actually worried about, oh, somebody got infected or that, you know, they're concerned of catching it. And people who are sitting at a desk 100 feet away from a patient, they're putting face masks on now where actually what they should be doing is washing their hands because that desk could be, or the, the, the phone, uh, you know, could be contaminated with the coronavirus, but they're wearing a mask. So masks are hugely important, but it's just part of many parts of PPE that we need to educate people on. Dr. Lambert, thank you. My thanks to Declan Conlon, who produced today's podcast. And thanks for listening. Stay up to date with the latest developments at irishtimes.com. We'll be back on Monday.